Well, you all, the life of Daniel has, um, has been sort of the backdrop or the context uh, for us this semester as we've been asking this question, what does it mean to be salt and light? How do we be different, uh, for goodness sake? Uh, and here we are, we coming to, uh, to Daniel 3 tonight. Uh, the passage that you have before you is about a lot of things. I, I imagine there's probably three or four sermons we could preach from this passage. Uh, but what I want to talk to you tonight uh, about is worship, this, this idea or this topic of worship. Uh, the word worship appears uh, 11 times in the passage you have, and the golden image or idol, uh, those words are also referenced uh, 11 times, interestingly enough. Okay, our word worship uh, comes from the old English word worthship, which means to declare something or someone's worth. We worship what we think is worthy, uh, worthy of our time, worthy of our energy, worthy of our praise. We all worship something. All of us are worshipers. Uh, in one of the greatest commencement speeches uh, that has ever been given, the late author, uh, David Foster Wallace, said, and I quote, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Uh, we all have something that we are living for or striving for. What is it for you? What do you believe uh, that you must have in order to live a full and happy life? To whom or what do you turn for your ultimate sense of meaning uh, and security and worth? How might you complete this sentence? Uh, if I have this, sort of fill in the blank, if I have this, I'm everything. But if I lose this, I'm nothing. How do you answer that question? How you answer that question is a good indication or clue as to what you actually worship. What do you think you need in order to live a full and happy life? Again, um, quoting David Foster Wallace uh, from that commencement speech, and this is just a lengthy quote. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, right, Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will ne need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship, Wallace says, is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. 
and the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but there are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. You don't get to choose whether or not you will worship. You only get to choose what you will worship. What is it for you? Who or what are you worshiping? Your options are fairly limited. Either you worship God, maker and heaven and earth, or you worship some God substitute, right? Something lesser, uh, what the Bible calls an idol. And you are finding your sense of meaning and security uh, and worth there, right, from that thing. Again, money or power or sexual allure or business success or popularity, right? Those options are seemingly endless. But either you are worshiping God or you are worshiping some God substitute, something lesser, an idol. What I want to do tonight is look at each of these options in turn. The deadness of idolatry and the life of worship. Those are sort of two headings. The deadness of idolatry, the life of worship. Chapter 3, here, thinking of the deadness of idolatry, chapter 3 begins with King Nebuchadnezzar making a golden image of himself 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, uh, and demanding that all people bow down to and and worship him, uh, worship it. A little context is helpful. Last week, chapter 2, the king had a dream and demanded uh, an interpretation. Uh, In that dream, he saw a man with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And Daniel explained to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, it won't last forever. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, the middle of silver, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth after, and so on. That happened in chapter 2. The building of this statue in chapter 3 is, uh, in many respects, Nebuchadnezzar's refutation uh, of that dream uh, and its interpretation. In building it, uh, he is, in, uh, in essence, declaring, I'm not just the head of gold, I'm the body of gold. I'm the man of gold. 
Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to cement his kingdom. He's seeking to cement his legacy uh, as well as his status. Look at me, right? Worship me. I am uh, a successful person. I matter. I am somebody. This statue, in a lot of respects, isn't what he worships. It symbolizes, right, what he worships. To whom or what is Nebuchadnezzar turning uh, to for his sense of meaning, uh, security, and worth? Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, life has meaning, right? He has worth because he has power and influence over others, right? Power. Life has meaning. He has worth because he's successful. Look at what my hands have built. Look at my empire of gold. Life has meaning. He has worth if and when he is loved and respected by others. He's a narcissist. He's addicted uh, to approval. He's hungry for it. He's infatuated with himself, and he, is, uh, he wants and demands that you be infatuated with him too. And when he doesn't get the approval that he craves, he flies into a murderous rage. Right? Angry tweets. Nebuchadnezzar is not the only idolater in this passage. Consider everybody else. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of all the provinces gathered there on the plains of Dura too. All of these people are mindlessly going with the flow. The music cues up and they fall to their knees and they worship. Theirs is a mindless, uh, mechanistic sort of worship. It's not that they actually believe that Nebuchadnezzar is their god. They know better. They're not worshiping him so much as, in some weird way, they are worshiping um, themselves. They are primarily concerned with themselves. They are getting their sense of meaning uh, and security and worth from the comforts that come from conformity. Going with the flow, not standing out, doing what everybody else is doing. Right? This is safe. This is secure. Their safety and their security is more important than any moral objection they might level against worshiping this particular image or even the uh, command that attends it, that those who don't should be put to death. They are more concerned with their safety, their security of going with the flow than raising sort of any objection to that. What else are they worshiping? Well, they are worshiping their proximity to power. You notice all of these folks, are they're, they have ranks in the government, and they don't want to lose that. That's really important to them. Because they have it, that makes them somebody. That, they matter, Right? They want to maintain their influence. They want to be part of the inner ring. And of course, they want the approval of their peers as well. These are the things that those folks gathered on the plains of Dura are worshiping. It's not just an idol. It's not just that. What gives their life meaning and significance and security is access to power. 
safety and security, right? the approval of others. That's what they think they need in order to live a full and happy life. And so they bow down. right? They worship. These folks are not all that different uh, from you and from me. We'd be, I think, um, wrong to start casting stones. A lot of you feel the same pressures uh, to conform um, here at the University of Vermont, to simply go with the flow. And some of you do. Um, It's simply easier uh, and safer to conform than to stick out and say no. It's easier to conform than to be different, for goodness sake. Last Thursday, there was a um, uh, a training at the Interfaith Center called um, Step Up. It's a training that the Interfaith Center put on as well as the Wellness Center. And they'll offer it again. Um, So if you missed it and you want to take it, you can. But the Step Up training uh, was all about recognizing uh, abuse or discrimination around you and stepping up to stop it. The heart of the training um, was dealing with what psychologists and sociologists call the bystander effect. Okay, the bystander effect. What they have found, right, what the research has proven, uh, is that people are less likely to help another human being when they are in a group, right, versus when they are alone. Um, research has shown that 80% of people help another person when they are the lone bystander. It's just you coming up with somebody in need. You're 80% more likely to help that person than if you are in a group. You're only 20% likely to help somebody when you are surrounded by friends. This is what they call the bystander effect. And why is this? Why does this happen? Well, go to the training. All right, I'll let you know when the next one is. Uh, but there are a whole host of reasons why this is true. For example, the fusion of responsibility Right? You just think, well, somebody else in the group is going to do it. There's ambiguity. Is this really a big deal? Everybody else seems to be okay with this. Uh, and there are other factors, uh, including conformity. Conformity is the process by which people's beliefs or behaviors are influenced by others. via subtle, even unconscious processes or by direct uh, and overt peer pressure. Worship this idol or you die, right? It is group behavior. Often, um, individuals in the group, right, will recognize that something is wrong, but they don't speak out, or they don't step up, but they simply go with the flow. And they do this because they don't want to call attention to themselves, because they don't want to jeopardize the relationships they have with those around them, their roommates, their friends, their family. And they assume, often wrongly, that no one else is uh, upset or concerned. They think, man, I'm the only one who cares, not realizing that everybody else might be thinking the same thing. Like, gosh, this doesn't seem right. But I'm alone. I'm the only one. And so you just go with the flow. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to jeopardize your relationships. On the plains of Dura, and right here on this college campus, a bunch of folks 
are slipping into the unconscious worship of self, power, money, things, approval. It's happening. Again, the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving in the worship of self. But there are different kinds of freedom and there are different kinds of loves. Y'all, it is not wrong um, it's not wrong to desire significance and security, worth. That's not bad. The problem is when you seek to fill those needs or to fill that hole in your heart right, for those things uh, with God substitutes, with things lesser than God. Only God can adequately give you um, what your heart truly desires, but we often turn to other things, even good things, and seek to find our meaning and significance and security there. Uh, But the hole in our heart is too big, uh, and these things that we try to stuff it with are simply too small. And the more that you feed these idols, the more they demand of you. Um, They suck you dry rather than fill you up. And in the end, they destroy you, and they destroy the lives of those around you. Chasing after these things, pinpointing your, your meaning and your value in what you do, what you accomplish, or how many people approve of you, or what your body image is like, this will destroy you. And it will destroy the lives of those you care about. Idols are deadly. This brings us uh, to our second point, okay, the life of worship. On the plains of Dura uh, and on this college campus, there are a bunch of people chasing after false gods. But there are as well uh, a small group of people who have refused uh, to join the rat race. Look at verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The king hears this. He's irate. Worship me. Conform or die. And these three men reply, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that still we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The expression uh, on Nebuchadnezzar's face changes. He's like, wait, what? What did you say? And he can't believe his ears. And his anger overwhelms him. Heat the furnace seven times what is normal. The the furnace is so hot that the men who have bound out 
bound up Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they burn up and die as they are casting these men uh, into the furnace. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, wait, John, you said idolatry is deadly, but it sounds like standing up for God and saying, like, we're not going to worship these false idols, this is kind of deadly too. Um, Maybe even more deadly than just bowing down to this golden image. Uh, I want to say, hold on. Look at what happens next. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fall into the fire. Their decision uh, to not conform, uh, to step up, as, a, as it were, right? To say, no, we're going to worship the one true God. That decision cost them. It did. But that decision didn't destroy them. And here's why. Because behold, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You all, God does not save them from the flames. God saves them through the flames. God is right there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of their suffering. And he brings them safely through. In Isaiah 43, a passage that was written hundreds of years before the Babylonian exile, and a passage, no doubt, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had read and were familiar with, God promises these very words. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes. I love you, and I am with you. End quote. God doesn't just feel this way about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He feels this way towards you. Roughly 500 years uh, after the incident that is recorded in Daniel 3, a man walked uh, this earth named Jesus. Uh, Yeshua in Hebrew. Uh, A name that means God saves. That's what Jesus' name means, God saves. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall know him as Emmanuel, which means God with us. This man named Jesus, this man called Emmanuel, God saves, God is with us. This very one ate and drank with sinners. He healed the sick. 
He gave sight to the blind. He cleansed lepers, and then he would go out to dinner with them. He fed the hungry, shepherded the homeless, and he preached good news to the poor. He didn't just teach what it means to love God and love neighbor. He did it, and he did it perfectly. In a broken, fallen world, and a a world um, that is backwards, Jesus went against the grain. Just say he went with it. And that decision cost him. He was hated for it. He was despised uh, because of it. He was nailed to a cross and killed. What crimes did Jesus commit? What sins was he being punished for? Well, certainly none of his own. On the cross, Jesus wasn't paying the penalty for his sins. He was paying the penalty for our own. On the cross, God with us was bearing the punishment yours and my sins deserve. On the cross, God saves, suffered with sinners and for sinners. On the cross, the Son of God and Son of Mary experienced hell. Right, So we don't have to. He experienced the ultimate fiery furnace. So we don't have to. Because God experienced that furnace for you, you can trust that he is there with you in every other furnace that you might face as well. Every other furnace you will face, you can be confident that God will be with you in that one because he was there with you on the cross. He experienced that furnace first. Whether that furnace is taking heat for your faith or suffering because of a loss of a loved one, Rejection from a boyfriend or a girlfriend, whatever it may be, whatever, fire, whatever fiery trials that you are going through, you can be confident that God is with you. That he won't necessarily save you from the flames, but he will save you through them. God did this and he does this for you. Because you too are precious in his eyes. He loves you. And he wants to be with you. He doesn't want your sins to separate you from him any longer. This is how God saves. Through the flames and not from them. He doesn't shout down instructions from heaven. He doesn't drop down a ladder and say, climb up. Like a fireman, he enters a world on fire to rescue the ones who are trapped inside. He gets licked by the flames and he brings us safely through. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is the God that we worship every Tuesday night when we come here for lunch. The same one. God believes that you are worth living for and dying for. And I don't know about you, but that makes me believe that he is worth living for and dying for too. To me... That makes him worthy of my worship.
And before we do that one more time, before we sing and declare God's worth, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are prone uh, to run after other gods and to find our meaning and significance and worth in lesser things. The only thing that will woo us back to you is to see you uh, in the fire with us, as it were, living and dying for us on a cross uh, so that we can be saved uh, from the flames. You have done this. You have done it for us in Jesus. Thank you. Uh, You are worthy of our praise. Uh, It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all, let's stand. Let's sing one more time uh, before we go.